welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, I am Kevin Graham at PGY4 in the Integrated Thoracic Program at Indiana University. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Mimi Seppa from Indiana University regarding her opinion on esophageal perforations. We will discuss the preoperative workup, indications for operative and non-operative management, and post-operative care. Dr. Seppa serves as Assistant Professor of Surgery at Indiana University in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery. She completed her thoracic surgery training at Duke University. Thank you, Dr. Seppa, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to do this with you, Kevin. We will begin with a case scenario. A 55-year-old male with a past medical history significant for alcohol abuse had several episodes of forceful emesis. His last episode was followed by severe pain in his lower chest and upper abdomen. He presents to the ED with fever, chills, and chest pain. Dr. Seppa, what are your thoughts on a differential diagnosis for this patient and your initial strategy to work up the patient? Well, uh, what you're describing, Kevin, is a pretty classic presentation of Borhoff syndrome. Um, and so with the forceful episodes of emesis and then the severe chest pain and fevers and chills, my first concern would be per, uh, esophageal perforation. Now, of course, we can't discount other causes for chest pain, such as myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, pneumothorax, pericarditis, however, you know, once again, I think the, the most urgent and the, the number one on the list right now uh, would be esophageal perforation. With that in mind, obviously we start off with a focused uh, history and physical. And so uh, while discussing with the patient, I find out more details about the scenario, how long this lasted for, how long ago was the bouts of emesis, um, exactly where his pain is, and then a past medical, brief past medical history, um, whether or not he has a history of reflux, whether or not uh, he has a history of coronary artery disease um, or um, known aortic aneurysms. And then, um, and then throughout this time, you know, of course, acquire a set of vitals and determine whether or not the patient is hypotensive, tachycardic. These are things that would worry me some more, um, whether or not he uh, has fevers. And then we would initiate uh, volume resuscitation um, uh, with you know, IV fluids and, and then go from there. Obviously, basic labs should be acquired, CBC, Chem 7. Um, coags in case the patient does need to carry the OR type and screen. Um, you know, blood cultures and troponins can happen as well, but they're not as urgent since, once again, esophageal perforation is highest on our differential. Um, and then see how, they, how, how where things go from there. Um, another initial uh, easy test to do would be a chest x-ray. Um, obviously, if the patient has an effusion, particularly if it's left-sided, that would increase my concern for esophageal perforation. Uh, if the patient has a pneumothorax, same thing if the patient has pneumomediastinum. Um, free air can also present in the abdomen, um, but less frequently. So the pre patient presents to the ED several hours after the onset of his chest pain. He's currently tachycardic, febrile to 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit, and normal tensive. His physical exam is otherwise normal. A chest x-ray demonstrates a moderate to large left pleural effusion with a tiny apical pneumothorax. Are there any other imaging studies you would attain at this point? I think the gold standard would be to proceed with uh, an esophagram 
in order to localize uh, the perforation since once again between the clinical history the large effusion and the fact that there's a pneumothorax once again perforation is uh, extremely high on the list um, and esophagram will help localize it even though technically the left side of pleural effusion somewhat is localizing it for you um, and so that's what I would do um, in this day and age I must admit sometimes we don't get called at this point and the patient's already getting a CT scan um, often with or without oral contrast and so that within, in and of itself will also help um, help clinch the diagnosis. An esophagram demonstrates ex extravasation from the distal esophagus into the left pleural space. What would your management strategy be at this point? Well, it would be pretty clear at this point that the patient likely will need to go to surgery for a repair of the esophageal uh, perforation. And so initial management would be stabilizing the patient to make sure the patient's safe enough to have surgery, but that uh, for the most part, most patients are. Um, and if we needed to intubate the patient to achieve that and or um, give more fluids, then, then, um, then we do that. Um, uh, it's rare that you'll need to start any vasoactive agents, um, but once again, you support the patient so we can get them stable enough to go to surgery. And then pretty much, I think surgery is the next way to go. Can you speak to uh, antibiotic management at this point? Right, and so you know, once the uh, even with the assumption of an esophageal perforation, you can start uh, with a dose of IV antibiotics, especially given the fact the patient has a fever. Um, certainly, with an esophagram that clearly demonstrates a, a perforation, IV antibiotics would be part of the resuscitation initial resuscitation efforts. Okay, can you speak about the key points of operative repair? Sure. Um, so when I'm faced with a quote-unquote, routine esophageal perforation in a healthy patient who is more or less hemodynamically stable. I typically like to do three things. Number one, um, I like to make sure that we have nutrition access. And number two, I usually perform a primary repair. And number three, of course, wash out and decortication and uh, leave large drains. So. When I post a case, I always make it clear to tell the nurses, OR nurses and the OR staff, who often in the middle of the night are not uh, well versed in thoracic surgery, you know, that I need an EGD, that I need a PEG kit, um, thoracotomy tray, etc. Okay. Uh, once we get into the room, um, I usually start off with doing the scope myself so I can see uh, and evaluate the perforation for myself, in addition to evaluating the mucosa and the esophagus um, and uh, evaluating the stomach. At that same time, I'll put in the PEG tube for nutrition access post-operatively. Then once the patient's in position for a thoracotomy, always remember to do a low thoracotomy so it's easier to access the esophagus at the GE junction, typically, which is where it's um, the perforations for Warhols uh, present. Uh, so a sixth or seventh inner space. Um, on the way in, I, I favor using an intercostal muscle flap to buttress my repair. And so I always remember that a priori, so as we're going in, I harvest the intercostal muscle so I don't crush it with the rib retractor. Once um, we're in, obviously, we'll uh, wash out the chest thoroughly and then um, retract the lung uh, anteriorly and superiorly to expose the posterior mediastinum. Most of the time, the perforation, or at least the area of the perforation, is fairly obvious, and that the pleura and the mediastinal space will look somewhat soiled. Um, 
And so uh, you, I proceed to open up the pleural space, identify the esophagus, uh, mobilize it so that I can see the full extent of the perforation, both distally and proximally. Um, often you might have to perform a little bit more of a myotomy to fully see the extent of the mucosal injury. Uh, once that's exposed adequately, then um, uh, you know, inspect, I inspect the, the tissue to see if it's viable and to see if I think that a repair, a primary repair will succeed. And then uh, I close the esophagus in a two-layer fashion. So using absorbable uh, suture for the mucosal layer. And then um, I usually, and I do that typically in a running, with a running stitch. And, it, uh, and cl closing the muscle overlying it in an interrupted fashion, I, you can use absorbable or I actually like to use um, non-absorbable suture like silk in order to uh, to facilitate scarring and healing. Um, but anyways, um, and then and then I uh, buttress the repair with the intercostal muscle flap. Um, and then of course, once again, back to the washout and leaving wide open drains. Uh, under what circumstances would you proceed with uh, an esophageal exclusion instead of a primary repair with a buttress? So I have found it very seldomly necessary to do a diversion. I almost always try to avoid diversion at all costs because it's highly morbid for the patient. Um, now, as the scenarios in which this would possibly happen would be number one, if we get in there, it's there has been delayed um, presentation and the tissue is frankly necrotic and a repair clearly will not um, be successful, then diversion is, is uh, an option. And sometimes you can see that with the EGD. Another scenario would be, for instance, if the perforation was um, caused by a caustic injury, like the ingestion of lye or acid, where the tissue is not going to hold up, and so therefore you just pretty much plant, or you know, once again, the tissue would be all necrotic on scoping the patient. And so those patients are the ones I would plan on just diverting. And, you know, the other thought would be in a extremely hemodynamically unstable patient. That, once again, is also rare, but in an extremely hemodynamically unstable patient, you want to kind of get in, damage control, drain, uh, um, do things quickly so you can get the patient back to the ICU and stabilize them, you know, and then possibly, like, early reconstruction. But, um, but that would be another scenario in which I would consider esophageal diversion. How would your operation change if you knew that there was a distal obstruction before going in? So if a patient had an esophageal web that was being dilated and this caused the perforation? Right, or an esophageal cancer would be another situation. So, so I would say if I knew that there was another underlying issue, um, that would change the conduct of my operation. Now, in the situation that you're suggesting, a distal, um, a distal stricture, clearly if we have a distal stricture, I'd be concerned that if I did a primary repair, uh, that the repair will ultimately fail. And so, so we would have to address the, the, the issue. So in the setting of a distal stricture, possibly, or a chalasia maybe, um, we could possibly consider doing like a, a myotomy, et cetera. Um, or I'd have a lower threshold to do something like perform a esophagectomy. In a patient, for instance, who has a esophageal cancer that is perforated, I would be doing an esophagectomy as opposed to, as opposed to doing um, a primary repair. If you uh, did an esophagectomy at the time, knowing that it was an esophageal cancer, 
would you uh, do a gastric pull-up at that time or would you bring the patient back at a later date to do reconstruction? Right, good question. So I, once again, I try to avoid a scenario where the patient is diverted as much as I possibly can due to the morbidity on the patient. So if the patient is otherwise hemodynamically stable and um, clinically okay, then I would plan on doing the esophagectomy and with, primary, with reconstruction at the same setting. Um, if there's any question, I would perform an esophagectomy and then wait a day or two to make sure the patient's stable and then do um, you know, early reconstruction. But, um, but you know, when it, I, I've rarely been in a scenario where I cannot, I would opt not to um, reconstruct right away. Okay. Uh, what role does esophageal stenting play in the management of an esophageal perforation? Right, so I would say that it is becoming increasingly popular to treat esophageal perforations with, um, with a stent. Um, now, location is important, right? This, uh, perforations that are by the GE junction are hard to stent. There's no distal vending zone. A lot of gastroenterologists and or thoracic surgeons are more skeptical about um, placing a stent in this location. So I would say mid-esophageal perforations are a little bit more amenable to stenting. Um, the other thing, the other characteristics of a perforation that are more amenable to stenting is size. So if it's a smaller perforation, two, three centimeters, I think most of gastroenterologists will not stent something greater than three centimeters that's a perforation. Um, and I don't think that that's not unwise. Um, I, I know that several people have done stented larger perforations, but I'm, not, I'm skeptical as to the success of um, stenting those. Um, so th those are the scenarios in which stenting plays a role. Um, another scenario in which I would consider stenting is if there's a delayed um, a diagnosis of, of, of perforation. And I, I often favor doing a stent and then doing decortication for drainage. Um, another scenario in which I favor doing stenting for esophageal perforation is older patients with high mor uh, comorbidities um, for which I know who are unlikely to recover very quickly from a thoracotomy, perforation repair, etc. Um, and so I favor, once again, stenting and decorticating them thoracoscopically. Um, and then those are typically the scenarios in which stenting uh, would be helpful. Are there any patients when you would consider medical management alone uh, when considering like size of the perforation being on the smaller side mm -hmm. and a stable patient? Yeah, the only time in which I would consider medical management alone, meaning only IV antibiotics and uh, no surgical intervention, not even decortication or percutaneous drain, um, would be if it was a contained leak. Clearly a contained leak where on the esophagram it, there's a, perhaps a little outpouching but then the contrast uh, drains right back into the esophagus. Or we often see micro perforations here where you, there's pneumomediastinum. Clearly there's been some sort of perforation on some level but there's no gross perforation on EGD or on a, the esophagram. Um, then those are the only patients I would manage purely with medical management. Uh, can you talk about maybe like a cervical perforation, how obviously left thoracotomy would not be appropriate in a, in a more proximal uh, perforation, can you speak to an operation for that? Right, so if it's a high cervical perforation, most of those can be drained through the neck. 
And so that's how I typically manage those. We've seen a handful of those iatrogenic from zinkers, endoscopic zinkers repairs in them. You know, they're not amenable to stenting because they're so high up. It's hard to stent across the upper esophageal sphincter. It's also painful for the patient. There's no landing zone proximally. And typically those are, I manage those with, you know, keeping the patient MPO, IV antibiotics, uh, giving them nutrition access, and then uh, just opening up the neck and letting it drain out that way. In a patient who had uh, an esophageal exclusion, uh, when would you bring that patient back for a reconstruction? That's a great question. So in patients who I actually have opted to perform an esophageal diversion, typically those patients are fairly sick, they're fairly weak, deconditioned, um, malnourished, they're patients with, high, um, uh, comor with a lot of comorbidities and high risk factors. And so I usually will wait a good two, three months, typically three at least, um, after they've been discharged. Uh, to make sure they're nutritionally replete, to make sure they fully recovered from surgery, etc. On rare occasion, in a young, otherwise healthy patient, I've actually reconstructed the patient within the same hospitalization about uh, you know a week thereafter. And you know, once again, that's at a highly, highly select group of patients. And that is off. That is not the usual patients in which I am. Um, I end up doing a diversion. Now, the other important detail to um, think about in terms of um, reconstructing patients is what conduit to use. Now, most of the time in these patients you can still use the stomach to reconstruct the patient, um, but I always come into the reconstruction operation having, it be, I, I usually come into the operation prepared to do a, a colon interposition um, for reconstruction in the event that that's what I need to do, in the event that the stomach is not a good conduit option. And so that meaning, you know, preoperatively I'll get a CTA, the patient will have a colonoscopy, um, and uh, the patient will have a bowel prep. Uh, in regards to management of a stented patient, uh, what would be the follow-up for that patient and when would you actually remove the stent? That's a great question. So. Um, obviously, the postoperative course for patients who have stents is a little bit different in, in a sense that um, most patients who are stented uh, are able to take in oral intake and, and be able to nutritionally sustain themselves orally. And so um, they often can go home a little bit sooner from the standpoint of it's mostly just chest tube management from the decortication. Now, once they're discharged, for the most part, uh, I have the patient come back about four weeks after the stent has been placed, and then remove the stent, reevaluate the tissue, and perform a you know a um, fluoroscopic study right at the time of the stent removal. And the stent, most of the time, that's sufficient amount of time for the uh, perforation to heal, and the stent will stay out. Sometimes the stent will go, another stent will go back in and then give the patients a couple more weeks uh, of healing. Okay. What are your thoughts on a T tube for? Uh, perforation? I must admit I've never done a T-tube in my life. <laughs> so um, either primary repair or drainage is sufficient and stenting. Uh, but I've never been in a situation where I've used a T-tube. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us today and for discussing your thoughts on esophageal perforation. Thank you.